1: We live in an always-on, hyper-connected digital society. Almost every aspect of our lives seems to have a virtual element, which means we leave endless trails of data to be hoovered up for good and for evil. The results include identity theft, cybercrime, ransomware, illegal spying, harassment, cyber intimidation, the list goes on. Indeed, the digital world seems to be a kind of Wild West, where almost everything goes there are few rules or laws, fewer enforcers, the strong prey on the weak. Ronald Debert is one of the white hats in this story. As founder and director of the Citizen Lab at Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto, he has built an organization whose purpose is to, among other things, protect citizens and civil society from at least some of those digital predators. I'm pleased to add that Ron was a finalist for the Tilburg Foundation's Global Leadership Prize this year. Welcome, Ron.
2: Nice to be here with you, Alan.
1: Ron, you and Citizen Lab have a well-earned reputation for using the tools of the digital world to expose and sometimes even thwart some of those high-profile predators uh, online. In an insecure world, you're creating security which is no mean feat but let me ask maybe the foundation question why what is it about our times that we need you and the citizen lab that there's something missing that you're filling a gap but but, but what's missing and why do you have to fill that gap thank god you're doing it <laughs>
2: Uh, Well, I guess the best way to answer that is to give a bit of an origin story. So I founded the Citizen Lab back in 2001. And at that time, the mission was really to undertake research, and in particular, interdisciplinary research. So I'm a social scientist, international relations is my area of expertise. And um, I realized that there were methods especially in the technical disciplines computer science and engineering science that could be leveraged to gather evidence about things that were going on as I think about it beneath the surface of the internet Um, things like censorship or surveillance uh, anything that was being uh, largely obscured from the public but I thought was in the public interest And over time, uh, we became quite successful at doing this, exposing, as you put it, high profile predators, although I'd probably use slightly different language. And we came to realize that for a variety of reasons, the digital ecosystem that surrounds us has been um, the site of all sorts of malfeasance and the exercise of political power. Um, governments all around the world are deploying a whole range of sophisticated tools to manipulate data, infiltrate targets, shape outcomes. And um, the more that we were uh, unearthing some of these activities, uh, the more I began to realize that um, what we were witnessing were real serious risks to human rights and liberal democracy. And. Um, and so i guess you know to answer the question um i believe that if we value human rights and we want liberal democratic institutions to uh persist into the future we need watchdog organizations to spot this type of um bad behavior and bring it to light um we hope in doing so that this enables others to help secure people to help people secure themselves from those risks and threats. Um, But the first job is really just the investigation part, bringing it all to light. And that's the vast majority of what we do at the Citizen Lab.
1: How, I wanna come back in a moment to your relationship to governments uh, and on both sides of the divide of history. Uh, But let me start by asking How do you decide what projects to take on? What's the decision-making process? Because there's there's an endless, I suspect, opportunity space. Mm -hmm. There is.
2: Uh, So we define our our research profile in a couple of ways to narrow it down, because you're right, this is a huge area. There are lots of things that are happening all the time in the kind of digital media space. Uh, So our focus principally is on... Uh, digital security, cybersecurity, if you want to use that language, but we don't cover the entire terrain. Um, We focus on issues that have or arise out of human rights concerns. Um, So that means that we typically don't explore things that maybe private threat intelligence companies do, like the risks of ransomware to big Fortune 500 companies, um that sort of thing we assume is being taken care of for better or for worse we focus on marginalized groups uh and especially civil society journalists human rights defenders um who you know originally when i started out in my career many years ago it was widely assumed that the internet social media mobile uh mobile technology would empower civil society and to some extent it has but really, the tables have been turned, and they become a, a huge source of vulnerability for these groups, um, to the extent that, as I said at the outset, I, I believe it's presenting a serious risk to human rights globally and to liberal democracy. Um, so we narrow it that way. Uh, we have a couple of pillars, um, thematic areas that we focus on. For a long time, we've been documenting uh, internet censorship on the web, uh, looking at the ways in which access to information is restricted to certain populations worldwide. Um, we're very interested in uh, the security and privacy aspects of uh, applications that are widely used on mobile devices and other uh, devices. Um, applications uh, are often uh, the front the frontline entry point for a lot of people to the internet. Um, and yet many of them have embedded within them various forms of information control that we want to expose. Uh, we also work a lot in the area of we call targeted threats, which is basically about cyber espionage, targeting journalists, human rights defenders and others. Um, but basically, you know, they're, they're, we have the luxury given the size and maturity of the organization to pick and choose So a lot of it is driven in an organic way by something coming across our radar that one or another of the researchers finds worth investigating, and we dive into it.
1: I'd like to use as a case study the work you did uh, on the NSO group, uh, which got a lot of attention worldwide, deservedly so. But perhaps that'd be a good entry point for people to understand the kinds of work, how you go about it. Uh, and the consequences.
2: Yeah. Well, the the work that we've done on NSO Group, uh, NSO, by the way, is a cyber uh, mercenary surveillance firm based in Israel, one among many in this growing marketplace. Um, Our interest in that particular firm's services and the abuse of, of its services actually goes back quite a long way. So in the late 2000s, we started getting interested in cyber espionage and in particular cyber espionage undertaken by governments against members of civil society. Uh, The Citizen Lab was actually part of the team that produced the very first public evidence-based report on cyber espionage called the Tracking Ghost Net Report, and uh, that was in 2009. Uh, Up until that time, there were classified reports, but nothing in the public domain that actually tracked a campaign. Now it's very common. Um, But back then, we were working with the Office of of His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, and Tibetan organizations in northern India, and we discovered their computers were hacked by China-based operatives. Uh, Those operatives made a mistake that allowed us to see all of the other victims that they were monitoring, which turned out to be uh, hundreds of high-profile targets, embassies, uh, government departments, and news organizations. Um, That was in 2009. And very shortly afterwards, we uh, began to realize that there was a commercial market for cyber espionage services that was beginning to blossom. Companies, in other words, providing government clients with capabilities they may not have in-house. So if you think about the United States and its very well-resourced national security agency, uh, you know, that requires a lot of. Um, financing, uh, uh, individuals working for the NSA who have a high level of engineering skills and other skills. A lot of countries can't can't do that in-house. And where this marketplace emerged was to service a growing appetite many of them had, especially after the Arab Spring, to counter what they saw as digitally enabled political opposition movements in the streets. People are using Twitter and Facebook to organize Autocrats and dictators said we need to stop this. We need to neutralize this. How do we do it? Well, that's where these firms entered into the equation. Many of them market themselves as providing uh, their government clients with tools to investigate serious matters of crime and terrorism, which no doubt is true in some cases, but uh, the absence of any regulation over that marketplace means that those services are often widely abused. So that's how we started getting into this area. We, we um, started uh, gathering evidence of the abuse of commercial spyware, starting first with firms like Hacking Team, uh, Gamma Group, and then eventually we came across the, the, um, the hacking services of NSO Group. Um, the way in which we do this type of research is uh, very much a combination of methods. And technical methods are actually quite critical. Um, So uh, we work often with targets, with their consent, we examine their devices, look for forensic evidence of uh, hacking and try to connect that to a company service and then maybe even attribute it to a particular government client, which we've done successfully. And if you're you're lucky, you might be able to acquire the spyware itself, which we have done on a couple of occasions, And, and that allowed us to reverse engineer it understand how it communicates over the internet, and then start mapping uh, the infrastructure of companies like NSO Group. Um, They, of course, have to send data across the internet from hacked devices to their clients. And that infrastructure that they set up leaves a kind of fingerprint or signatures that we can use to search the internet looking for who their clients are and so with NSO Group, since about uh, 2016, we've been doing this uh, wholeheartedly. Um, in, in part, uh, the exposure of NSO Group, uh, the fact that it's in the, in, in, the, uh, in the media, the company's profiled a lot, is a function of the fact that we've unearthed so many abuses connected to their technology.
1: There are so many threads out of that story to pull on. I'm not sure which one to start with. Um, <laughs> but, but maybe the obvious one is, and you, you mentioned both, I mentioned the Wild West, you mentioned the unregulated marketplace. Um, one could imagine that this is things governments ought to be worrying about. Uh, why is the marketplace still unregulated? Well, I I think there are a couple of reasons here. One is,
2: you know, I take issue with the idea of a wild west when it comes to the internet. In fact, there are all sorts of regulations up and down uh, the internet, and you know, it couldn't function were there not for rules yeah. and regulations and so on. Um, but the reality is, it's oriented and designed in a particular way that is um, unfortunately very insecure and uh the way in which the regulations are uh designed um which are mostly about allowing uh large platforms to undertake surveillance of customers this is the business model of social media um you know even if you look at the applications that we're using right now in in on one level they're about providing us with the ability to communicate with each other over the internet, but on another level, they're about gathering uh, data in order to monetize that data for advertising purposes. So you have this environment, let's call it, that's invasive by design, uh, but very much insecure. Um, It's it's difficult to build security into something so complex and global as this. Um, So you have that on the one side. Then you have governments, uh, and most governments have very well-resourced security agencies, intelligence agencies, espionage agencies, um, uh, law enforcement, military. Uh, their job is to navigate through all of this environment and gather data for particular missions, and um, every government does that. And they all benefit by the fact that you have this invasive by design poorly regulated, insecure system that they can exploit. Uh, It's it's highly addictive, I think, um, gathering intelligence. If you look at it from the perspective of the state agencies that do it, once you begin to successfully interrogate a person's most intimate details, it can be highly revealing. And, of course, in the hands of despots and others who, who are doing this without public accountability or any kind of safeguards, it can be highly abusive. Um, So every government has a kind of, you know, a dirty secret around an interest in this space and keeping it the way it is and making sure this market um, thrives. Uh, It makes a lot of people a lot of money. Uh, Let's not underestimate greed and corruption. Um, These are multi-billion dollar companies uh, that we're talking about here when it comes to commercial surveillance and um, and so there's there are a number of factors that kind of keep it the way it is. So you know one aim of our research is to raise an alarm bell and say hey if if this continues uh, the way it is going, we have some pretty big problems here because what's happening is that we're empowering those who want to undermine. Uh, public interest, undermine systems of public accountability, undermine liberal democracy. And they're succeeding uh, on, on the basis of these powerful surveillance technologies and a highly insecure system that can be exploited.
1: But at the same time, it's not just those autocracies and despots that might be unhappy with your work implication of the way you answered my last question is that the status quo serves all governments because they need that space to operate. So you're disrupting you're <laughs> disrupting the marketplace in a we sense. Are. That, must, that must make you a lot of friends. Uh, it does make us a lot of friends, actually.
2: I mean that genuinely. There, there are people who genuinely appreciate the work that we do and and we're seen as, uh, you know, a, a part of a community of others who are in various ways interested in doing what we're doing or, you know, complementing what we're doing. And that includes very large human rights organizations that we partner with, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch. We work routinely with investigative journalists. And I would even go so far as to say within governments, you know, governments are big animals. They're not monolithic. And there are different agencies and departments and personalities, you know, typically within the human rights divisions of most democratic states in their foreign affairs ministries, they very much applaud, appreciate and encourage the type of work that we do. Those who don't like it tend to come from the dark side. And, you know, they would rather there wasn't something like the Citizen Lab. I'm sure there are people in my own government that feel this is an irritant that they would be better off without because at the very least it causes unexpected diplomatic problems. I'm sure for the Canadian authorities um, in their relationships with maybe countries in the Gulf or Middle East whose espionage operations we expose, but that's part of the deal. I mean, you have to assume that if you're successful, you're going to irritate those whose malfeasance it is that you're exposing. And we wouldn't, we wouldn't be uh, accomplishing what we're accomplishing if there weren't people who really didn't, you know, really wish that we weren't doing what we're doing. And we have to kind of steel ourselves for that. It's part of the mission.
1: What do climate change and jazz greats John Petitucci, Terry Lynn Carrington, and Joe Lovano have in common? Telberg's Jazz for the Planet. Listen and watch them perform new music about the climate and about climate action at jazzfortheplanet.org. So you have, as, as you said, been really quite successful in exposing uh, the NSO group and some of the work, as well as other similar companies, if, if to call them companies. Um, with what consequence? Do they, this strikes me as whack-a-mole, at least possibly, where you, you, you succeed with uh, Cyberbit, you succeed with NSO Group, but then there's a dozen more that pop up over there. Is this, it's worthwhile doing it because you've got, at least you stopped something, Uh, Mm -hmm. but is there a sense of, uh, is there a sense of whack-a-mole that it's just, you could do this forever?
2: But that's a really good question, Alan, and and it applies to other areas of our work. For example, I I didn't mention this, but we do a lot of work uncovering um, censorship on China-based social media applications, and we're very successful at doing that. But then we often ask ourselves, well, what is the outcome here? Because it just there's just more, uh, more and more of it, um, and you, same might be said about the commercial spyware marketplace. For the longest time, we were very good at bringing public attention to this area, but we um, we and our um, partners in this space began challenging ourselves as to, well, how do we actually solve this problem? You know, it's, it's one thing to expose it. What are we going to do? And um, typically, this the Citizen Lab doesn't do advocacy. We we actually, you know, that's not our in our mandate. But of course, we. We um, communicate with and cooperate with those who do. And for most of us, we realize that the only way to uh, prevent the type of abuse that we're routinely exposing is by having governments act in some manner. And, you know, that, that's a pretty large spectrum of possibilities. So, uh, for example, some people have called for a global moratorium on the sale and transfer of spyware technology which i appreciate i understand where that's coming from i do however think that would be very unrealistic because most governments wouldn't go for it especially the ones that are uh the the uh routine abusers um so instead i think we have to uh, focus in on countries where you have the possibility of some real traction and what's been happening is people have been advocating within the united states and within other liberal democratic governments to regulate this sector in, in ways that might prevent some of the harms that we're seeing. And just, uh, I guess it was about a month ago or several weeks ago, we saw a, a great victory in this regard. The U.S. Commerce Department um, sanctioned, put on, a, on an entity list, NSO Group and another company uh, that Citizen Lab exposed, kendiru as well as several other companies, um, and that that's pretty significant blow to those companies because it, because it means that U um, S based uh, individuals or private businesses can't do business with them. And uh, that, that can really hamper the company directly, but even indirectly, it, it creates a kind of hot potato around NSO group and Kendiro for investors and others. So that's a good example. I think of, you know, once you begin to get some traction uh, some legislation is passed or some kind of regulation happens, uh, it begins to change the norms around the industry. It doesn't solve it. Uh, it's a very, very, uh, you know, baby step, I would say, um, that's that's been taken here. But if other companies follow suit, other governments follow suit, uh, I hope the Canadian government, for example, would follow suit and the UK government, um, it, it begins to uh bring some safeguards into the equation and make it more difficult for companies to nso like nso group to do what they're doing as frivolously as they're doing it, it doesn't solve the problem but it, it begins to solve the problem
1: so it is not if if i can push on that it's not that you're looking for legislation as i said you you don't do advocacy i i, I got that but the question you do think about how could this world change? Yeah. Uh, And it is about governments in the first instance actually taking this seriously and trying to create some controls within this space. That's right. And, And it really needs to begin
2: in jurisdictions where there is the possibility of some movement in that direction. So you can't expect for example, Saudi Arabia to change it's It's very difficult you know if you're if you're hoping for some kind of uh, reform around this, it's not going to happen there um, but uh it could happen in the United States. it could happen in the United Kingdom, it could happen in Canada, other democratic countries in Europe. um so you begin there and you hope that some measure of accountability will begin to emerge. And, you know, another possibility would be for those governments to recognize that they are responsible for this marketplace. They may not hire the worst companies uh, directly, but they do hire companies to do that sort of thing for them. So maybe you could encourage them to um, uh, build into their procurement policies certain standards that must be met by those companies. And in doing so, you kind of raise the bar and begin to ostracize or marginalize the worst offenders. Kind of run them out of business, frankly. Um, That could be done. I think it should be done. I think governments like Canada who procure these type of uh, technologies and services should be more transparent and publicly accountable about it. Who are they contracting from? Uh, Do they impose certain requirements on those companies? Make sure they're not selling to the worst offenders in the world who are going to use it to target journalists. Impose some standards and do some due diligence. Um, That's a model then. And it, it could become a norm if it's done by a large number of countries.
1: That's how I think you can get some positive change in this area. That could potentially operate within the community of like-minded countries, as we now call ourselves. It used to be called the free world, but it's not anymore. (laughs) Uh, Doesn't work with the Chinese, doesn't work with the Russians, presumably. And so at that geopolitical level, we've got different kinds of issues to to deal with. Um, And you've mentioned the Chinese issue, the Chinese problem, uh, but we have the same issues with the Russians. So it's hard to imagine that either we we recently had a a virtual summit with the Chinese. I suspect these issues were not necessarily at the top of the list, although they probably should be. Uh, We know they were on the list with the Russians and we know that didn't seem to have much in the way of consequence. Uh, So certainly it's a context in which this, this sort of conflict Context will continue, and you're operating within within parts of it.
2: Yeah, that's right. And and actually, the when you bring China into the equation, just put aside Russia for a second because they do things in their own unique way. Um, separate conversation for them. But with with China, we are seeing uh, many many surveillance firms that are based in China now exporting their technologies abroad, and oh, I'm sure that there there will be NSO Group uh style chinese firms entering into the marketplace probably already are um, and we will begin to unearth them no doubt uh, so what do you do about that you don't really have leverage over the chinese government um in ways that you would over the u.s uh government let's say um here i think we have to turn back to the question of defenses and the insecurities of the digital ecosystem Because while you may not be able to influence the Chinese government, you can do something about the huge uh, exposure that we all face as we rely on these technologies and encourage the platforms to do things differently. And and I think this boils down to, frankly, um, modifying or changing altogether the business model, which is principally about move fast and break things, push sensors in front of people in a kind of reckless fashion, uh, get, get uh, sensors as close to people as possible, extract as much data from people, treat them as raw material. Um, if we can modify some of that through regulation and by encouraging the platforms, the big tech companies to be better stewards of their, of their systems, and and take the security of their users seriously, you might be able to defend yourself better. And, and civil society would be, would be able to defend itself more effectively against what inevitably will come from those areas, Russia, China, elsewhere.
1: Unfortunately, that doesn't seem to be part of the DNA of those big tech companies. Uh, so it would require either their customers demanding it, which is possible but unlikely, yeah. Or the government's demanding it, which is also possible, but perhaps not so likely. But maybe an example of that, uh, and it's a very pragmatic example because it touches all of us, is Zoom. And we all know about Zoom. We all use Zoom. It got us through the pandemic, after all. Yeah. Um, but perhaps you could say a word about some of the work your team did on Zoom and, and, and its consequences. Sure.
2: Um and I'd like to get back to your, your the uh, assertion you made about the companies um, not being willing to change, because I, I think there's there may be a silver lining there, actually. Um, but l- let me speak first about Zoom. So um, when the pandemic happened, um, this is a good example of uh, what I described earlier, how our um, choices are made internally in the Citizen Lab as to what we will focus on. So the, the pandemic happened, everybody started working from home and we're all suddenly now relying on Zoom uh, and other platforms like it. Uh, we had heard about Zoom, but a lot of people had not and its popularity skyrocketed. Uh, and the researchers simply tore it apart, you know, uh, looked at it in an adversarial way uh, to understand better uh, whether it was properly engineered and was secure and respected users' privacy. And what we found was that there were some pretty glaring problems, uh, the most serious of which was around uh, the way in which calls were encrypted. Um, So there was at a a point in time, a a way in which it was designed that would allow us to uh, essentially eavesdrop on video calls. And also we found that in at least some circumstances, we observed the encryption keys that were used to secure calls coming from mainland China. So those two two together uh, were pretty big problems. Uh, We did a responsible disclosure to the company. Uh, Responsible disclosure is a process that we follow at the Citizen Lab. It's kind of like an industry standard. When you find something like this, you contact the company uh, and you hope that they act upon it, and you give them a deadline before you publish. Um, and, and Zoom, uh, to its credit, did that. Um, so it, it fixed a lot of the problems. Um, and that, I think that that particular episode shows the value of this type of security research, which is often demonized and criminalized and outlawed in various ways. Uh, recently, even there was a security researcher that discovered a basic flaw on a website disclosed it i think to the i can't remember which state it was in and they went out and charged the security researcher right so that, to me this is an upside down way of thinking we need to have you know people who are red teaming all of the technology we use all the time as long as they do it responsibly you know they don't exploit it in the way that companies like nso group do um, instead they disclose it to the vendors in the public interest and ask them to fix it we do that quite often Um, getting back to the question about the platforms though um, you know companies especially big tech companies are kind of like the way I described governments earlier they're very big animals they're not monolithic and there are parts of the companies that are very much into selling stuff and making money off of people's data but in almost all of the big tech companies there are very respected security teams Uh, Many of them uh, would acknowledge publicly uh, the value of the work that we and others do in this space. And they don't like when their platforms are exploited and they want to patch their systems. Um, So you can advocate within the companies to take steps to uh, at least, you know, be more proactive about securing their their tech. And um, I think generally speaking, the, uh, you know, the the weight of those teams is growing within the companies. Um, you know, leadership at the C-level now understands in ways they didn't 15 years ago why it's important to do that. Um, so it's a bit of a culture shift that needs to be encouraged. Yeah, and some of it should come through government regulation as well. But, you know, Apple, just to give you an example, we discovered... Uh, we, we captured a, an NSO exploit in the wild from the device of a Saudi activist who was part of our, our study, and uh, it exploited um, vulnerabilities in iOS that Apple didn't even know about. We did a responsible disclosure to Apple's security team, and they issued this emergency security patch within six days, affecting 1.6 billion people worldwide. Um, that's a pretty big deal to have a company act that fast and repair that problem and get it out there to increase everybody's security who uses Apple products.
1: Well, it's a good example. It answers the question of why you do what you do, uh, because it has impact. Uh, which leads to the last question. Um, obviously, Citizen Lab has been successful. We're operating in a gap that needs operating in. Do we need more Citizen Labs? Uh, yeah, I really wish
2: there were more of them, especially in universities. We we could be an NGO or a nonprofit somewhere doing what we're doing. But I think um, often overlooked is why it's important for us to be at a university and how the model of what we're doing at a university could be duplicated by other academics and other universities. So I imagine us as like an early warning system. And, and, you know, I I grew up studying arms control and and in in the north of Canada, there's something called the distant early warning radar. And, you know, if you this distant early warning radar system has many installations across the north of Canada, if you had only one, it wouldn't work very effectively, right? You need to have a bunch of them. And that's the way I think about um, the the mission of the Citizen Lab, uh, hope that um, other academics uh, who are interested in this topic build something like it in other universities because if we had 15 or 20 of them obviously we'd cast a wider net and catch more bad behavior and expose it uh, before people are harmed.
1: Well thank you for this conversation and indeed thank you for having built and made this animal work as successfully as it has. Congratulations. Thank you so much Alan. It's a pleasure to speak with you.
0: Thank you for joining us. Please rate our show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe. Meanwhile, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or you can subscribe to our newsletter at Talbergfoundation.org to learn more about our work. That's T A L L B E R G Foundation.org. Thank you, and we'll be back again next week for another episode of Talberg's New Thinking for a New World. This podcast was brought to you through the generous support of SNF, the Stavros Nyarkos Foundation.